Good morning. Welcome. Today we are wrapping up our foray through Third John. Oh, ah, there, there. Are, um, so, just kind of a quick recap of where we had been in previous weeks. We did observation and we did interpretation. When we talked about observation, we were observing things about the text. We were observing significant words and phrases. We were observing things about the literary structure of the text. What type of text is this? Um, we were looking for words, themes, phrases that may have been re repeated throughout. Maybe you know we were looking for words that that maybe were unusually wor unusual words or seemed to be theologically important to the context. Basically, in observation, what we're doing is information gathering. We're not necessarily making any type of interpretive decisions yet. We're just seeing what's there. Um, because one of the principles of inductive Bible studies, we begin and we end with the text itself. We may, you know, we may consult you know, a commentary, we may look at a lexicon to get a better understanding of the meaning of words and phrases. We may look at, you know, study notes in a study Bible, but it, at the beginning and the end of it, we're beginning and ending with the text. Because at the end of the day, we hold that Scripture is the best interpreter of itself. There, like I said, there can be resources that help us, but at the end of the day, Scripture speaks for itself, and we believe that Scripture is understandable. So we begin with, we're just information gathering. What's there? What do we see? Once we've done those steps of just gathering information about what's there, we moved into making interpretive decisions. So what does the information that we just gathered mean? How do we make sense of this? You know, one of the things that we noticed in 3 John is that the word truth or the theme of truth or testifying, walking in truth, is a theme that repeats itself. It's a word that repeats itself repeatedly throughout 3 John. Well, what does that mean? What does, truth, what does the truth mean? To understand that, we also looked at other places in John's writing where, where this idea of the truth shows up. We looked at other places in Scripture where this idea of the truth shows up to see if we get any type of understanding there about what can John be talking about when he's talking about the truth. We also noticed that there's a contrast between Diotrephes and Demetrius in, in their respective behaviors within this particular church to, to which John is writing. That, you know, there, there is great trouble that Diotrephes is bringing to, the, to this particular church, and yet, by point of contrast, we look at Demetrius, and his behavior within the church is quite commendable. They say, you know, 
Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. So we have a contrast between their particular behaviors. We talked about within this idea, you know, within that contrast, it's also against this backdrop of this repeating theme of truth that shows up. Coming to the conclusion that part of the issue with Diotrephes is a rejection of the truth and rejection not just of the truth itself, but of messengers of the truth and being resistant to correction casting out anybody who supports the apostles who are teaching the truth. An observation was made that some of the behaviors that Diotrephes is engaging in are consistent with with a cult of personality, of get rid of all the opposition and all the dissension and anyone who could possibly be correcting me, and I do my own thing. The last time we were here, we were looking at also this idea of truth. You know, why would John be writing so much about truth? What does the tr- what, why is John focused so much on the truth? Not just in his letter, this particular letter here, but also in 2 John, in 1 John, his gospel, and through Revelation. You know, the five books that we know that John wrote, the five letters that John wrote, truth is an overarching theme throughout his writings. Why? One of the things that we talked about when Henry was here was given the time that we think that John was writing this, at the end of the first century, he was the last surviving apostle. All All the previous apostles had died, he was the last one left. It's also writing against the backdrop of the Diocletian persecutions. And that the urgency with the truth is, you know, I was there. I saw this. This is true. You know, we talked about, you know, the example of the game of telephone, how once you start getting so many generations removed from the original source, alterations start creeping in. Creative liberties can start creeping in. People can start adding in a certain mythology about an event or a person. And so John is writing, no, I was there. This is what happened. This is who Jesus is. This is what he taught. This is what he did. I was there. I was a witness to it. It's hard to argue with a witness. You can say whatever you want to someone who wasn't there. You're not going to get away with that when you're talking to a person who was actually there. So the truth becomes of paramount importance to John. And that's that's pretty much where we left off at the end of our interpretation. So today, we move in to application. Okay, so we've observed what's there. We've talked about the meaning of the text, the interpretation. You know, what would this have meant from the original author to the original recipients? 
And so now we're on application. And application is the step where we move from the then and there to the here and now. Being very careful to understand that the meaning doesn't change. The meaning of the text is the meaning of the text. You know, John's not talking about truth in the first cent- you know, to first century Christians and the recipients of this letter, and then suddenly he's meaning something completely different to us today. That's not how this works. The letter is still talking about truth. Truth is at the core of the meaning of this letter. What we're doing in application, though, is we're moving from how did that apply to the first century church that received this in the Roman Empire in the middle of the Diocletian persecutions, where John is the last witness, to today where we're not in Rome, we're not being hunted down and executed for our faith here in America, John has been dead for 1,900 years. There are no surviving first-hand witnesses except the letters that they have left us. How do we apply this today in our lives? How, how should the meaning of this text bear itself out in our lives? So the first step that we do is we have to assess the applicability. You know, what, what is applicable about this text then and there, but also here and now? And then we move on to appropriating the meaning you know, and doing theology, the putting this into practice. So there's the identifying the principle at work, identifying the application, and then do, practically doing the application. So, how can we assess the relevance and the legitimacy today? How can we take what John meant and apply it today? How can we do that? John's focus here so much on truth, so much on... Um, There's a commendation of Demetrius. There's a commendation of the church that he's writing to. He talks about, you know, he rejoiced greatly that they're walking in the truth. Then there's the truth, you know, the truth testifies to Demetrius. There's also the issue with Diotrephes, that contrast of this isn't so good. And yet there's this thread of truth that runs through the whole thing. By telling the truth? Okay. So we talk about speaking the truth, that true is true, is it not? Is John talking about, well, that's true for you, not true for me? Is he talking about relativistic truth, which really is no truth at all? Or is he talking about the truth, absolute truth? Yeah, he's talking about 
absolute objective truth. And when, when we were talking about that last time, we also made the observation that in el- elsewhere, you know, when John is writing, he's quoting Jesus, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that truth is not just this amorphous concept for John. Truth is embodied in a person, Jesus Christ. Does that, does that affect this idea of telling the truth? Does, it, does telling the truth in this context just simply mean, I'm going to say what is true and not a falsehood, or is the truth that John is talking about something much more specific? Ah, oh, so he's talking about the gospel. Gospel truth. And that would fit with the context of John's letter. What else, what else can we draw from this text as things that are relevant for us today? We've, we've been given revealed truth. The law, the prophets, the apostles, the person and the work of Jesus Christ preserved in these pages for us. So we also, there's this idea that the truth, not just, you know, to... To quote an old TV show, it's not just the truth is out there, but it's unknowable. The truth is here. It's knowable. It's revealed. Is there anything applicable or relevant to us today when we see the contrast between Diotrephes and Demetrius? In their, in their respective conduct and the testimony for or against either man. Don't be like Diotrephes. <laughs> Don't be like Diotrephes. How is Diotrephes described? How, or 
he as a person isn't described, but how is his, what is his behavior that's been described for us in the text? Likes to be first. Interjects something about the about John as the apostle. Yeah. He's he's rejecting apostolic authority. You know, the people who bore first hand account to the truth. He but he's not just rejecting authority. We're told he talks nonsense about the apostles. He's He's slandering the apostles. He's making up falsehoods about the apostles. So for John's focus on truth, his description of Diotrephes is, in short, he's a liar. (laughs) He's a liar. And not just does he reject the authority the authority of the apostles, make up lies about them, puts himself in a place of preeminence, we're told he drives out everybody who supports the apostles. In short, he puts himself first, rejects authority, tells lies, and drives out anyone who calls him on it. Are there parallels today? Is this this a behavior that is solely limited to this time, this place, this situation? Or when we look throughout history, or even look in, in contemporary times today, do we see people, do we see leaders, do we see leaders in the church who comport themselves like Diotrephes, who put themselves first, who reject authority, who, who make up falsehoods, and who drive out anyone who calls them on it. Yeah. I, I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of at least five or six specific situations that I'm aware of. We look at our culture as a whole. This behavior is also very characteristic of cult leaders. Cults of personality. And if we were to think that the church is immune from cults of personality. Think again. We can think of churches. We can think of churches, false teachers, who have behaved in exactly this way. Does John speak particularly highly of Diotrephes? No, not at all. So there's, there's a warning in here as well that there are, there are people among you who will reject this truth. 
elsewhere in Scripture, it's written, they went out from among us, but they were not of us. So there's also a warning against false teachers. We have an example of a false teacher. But are we just left with Oh, well, here's this false teacher among you guys. Hey, you know, this is him. That Diotrephes, he's a false teacher. Or are we we given any direction in the text of what do we do about that? How do we combat a false teacher? How How do we combat false teaching? Do not imitate it. Don't imitate it. Speaking the truth, yeah. So not imitating, you know, we're told he puts himself first, he rejects authority, he's telling lies, and he's kicking out anyone that calls him on it. Don't imitate that. Don't seek out the place, don't seek out preeminence. Don't reject the authority of the people who were there, the apostles who were sent out. Don't make up falsehoods. And don't kick out the people who support the apostles who are telling the truth. We hold to the truth. And what is the truth? The person and work of Jesus Christ, the revealed word of God that we've been given, preserved for us throughout history, despite all attempts throughout history to destroy this book. And yet, the stronger the attempt to destroy the word of God, the more it's flourished. So there's relevancy for us today. We can look at this text and we can see parallels today in the behavior of Diotrephes, the truth is the truth. The, tr- the truth of the gospel that was relevant 2,000 years ago is just as relevant today. It ha- has the gospel changed in 2,000 years? Is the gospel today different than what it was 2,000 years ago when John was writing? So the truth that John held to is the same truth that we're called to hold to today. This is relevant to us today. The truth of the gospel is relevant today. The power of the truth to combat false teaching is relevant to us today. So we've established the legitimacy and the relevance that this isn't this letter isn't just a one-off oddity that oh we can understand what John was writing then and there to the people but there's meaning for us today because we hold to the same truth the same gospel that John preached it is relevant to us today so how do we live that out how do we do theology How do we put this into practice 
in our lives today. Okay, so we know the meaning for us today. We hold to the truth. We know what false teaching looks like, or at least the characteristics of false teachers. Well, we would know what false teaching looks like if we know what the truth is. Ah, so maybe is there an application of how do we, what, how do we apply this? Know the truth. Know the gospel. Inside and out. What else? How do we put this into practice? So that this isn't just an intellectual exercise of, oh, we know the meaning of the text. But this text, the truth of this text, the meaning of this text, should have a noticeable and meaningful effect on how we behave as Christians. Okay? So we call, call out false teaching. Absolutely. Sure. We, yeah, absolutely. We have to know, we have to prioritize, we have to make it a point to know what this says. To know the truth. It is, it is very hard for false teaching to creep into a place where the people know the word of God. We look at Paul's example when he talks about the Bereans. Paul taught something, but did the Bereans take it at face value? Oh, well, Paul said it. It must be true. No. They're commended as more excellent because they went to the Scriptures to test and see if what Paul taught was so. It is hard for false teaching to creep in where the people know the truth, where the people test the truth. We've heard it many times before. The truth does not need to fear examination. The truth will hold up. Examination will only serve to confirm the truth. one of the characteristics that we see in some places where false teaching has crept in is that the people are taught, oh no, you just have to take this. If you're questioning it, that just means you don't have enough faith. Well, if what you're teaching is true, why are you scared? Why are you so opposed to me testing it? Because if it's true, then the scripture is going to confirm that what you're teaching is true. So 
So we need to confront false teaching. But to confront false teaching, we need to make it a point ourselves to know the truth, to know the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to bind it to their foreheads, to write it over the doorposts of their house, to bind it to their arms, to so intensely study and know the scripture. It was just there. They knew it. When and how we do what? Okay. Good question. Are we given examples in Scripture of how to confront an errant brother? So, yeah, we're talked about, yeah, we're told. So I guess that's part of the question. If we're confronting, are we confronting a fellow believer who simply in in error but is correctable like if we were to go to them and say hey i heard what you said but that's not matching up with what scripture says and they and we know that they oh thank you for bringing that to my attention hey let me let me go correct what i put out there ideally that's what would happen in all situations Versus how do we confront someone who is not a believer, who simply is using this to try to use it for their own selfish and personal gain and evil purposes? Any ideas? Okay, so walk away. So some of this would be identifying too, in what way are they wrong? In what way are they in error? Are they in error on a primary doctrine of Scripture where Scripture is so undeniably clear that any deviation is falsehood? Are, they, are we in disagreement with them over secondary doctrine? Are we, are they, are we in disagreement over to steal the chart, Ken, are we in disagreement over doubtful things? I believe that drinking alcohol in moderation is not sin. They are absolutely convinced that any alcohol consumption whatsoever is sin. We're in disagreement. 
is that, but that's not a primary doctrine of Scripture. Oof. Well, <laughs> it's... Sure. Sure. Hmm. Would you say speaking in tongues is primary I wouldn't say that it's a primary salvific issue. You know, we can look at Scripture and we can see there is clear evidence in Scripture of people speaking in tongues. Okay? Just without getting into any nuance, without getting into any type of differentiation, is our people speaking in tongues present in Scripture? Yes. Now, the question then becomes, when we look at Scripture and people speaking in tongues, is this something that we see all Christians doing? No. So, so part of when we talk about you know, the cessationism versus continuationism. There are some in the continuationist camp who would hold to that the primary evidence of your salvation is speaking in tongues, and if you haven't spoken in tongues, I'm questioning your salvation. And so that starts ordering on primary doctrine issues because now you're touching on a salvific issue. There are some in the, there are those in the continuationist camp who don't necessarily hold to that, well, if you're saved, you will speak in tongues, but they would hold that speaking in tongues continues today. Right. Yeah, you're, you're, you're not, yeah, you're not extra saved. Right. Right. Yeah. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, now we're, now we're, now we're getting into the fun part of this debate. So, now, to get into the question, okay, how do you talk with people? You just said that you had a history that that's what you believed. What brought you out of that? And how long did that process take?
But that process was years? Yeah. So that's something that I think is good for us to remember on things like this where yeah. we would identify this issue, like the, the charismatic type issues, as significant issues. Absolutely. In many cases, we're not saying it's a salvific issue. We're not saying that, that there are individuals who, everyone who believes in speaking in tongues, that they're not saved. We're not saying that. But we are identifying a significant error because it does impact the way we view the role of the Holy Spirit. It does impact the way that we view our own understanding of how we interact with the Lord and interact with the Holy Spirit, how we interact with the Word of God itself. It impacts all of those things. And uh, if we're going to be consistent about it, uh, it, it can have an impact about what we believe about the sufficiency of Scripture, etc. So we do believe it's a very significant issue and something that's worth challenging people on. But we also know that it takes time when that's something that someone has been taught for so long, and this is true not only for this issue, but for any issue Absolutely. where there's error, that, there's, that we, it's something that we've been taught for so long, it takes time for us to begin to see, oh, okay, now I'm beginning to understand the scriptures more clearly, and so that's where a patient approach is really helpful. You know, just yesterday, I got a message from somebody who was uh, a, um, he was one of my roommates at college, and he was charismatic. He attended a charismatic church. He attended the IHOP church, Mike Bickle's church Ooh. in Kansas City. So <laughs> That's we're talking. That's a wild ride. Yeah. And me and a, and a few other guys had challenged him so many times about different things. And eventually he ended up walking away from that church but still being charismatic. Well, today he sent me a message saying, you know, okay, so now it's come out and it's in the news. If you look up Mike Bickle, uh, he is currently under investigation, all these things, sexual abuse allegations, all these Ooh. all these things that are not just allegations at this point like there there's there's a lot of evidence in support of things and so he is no longer at the head of IHOP he's had to step back and all these things he had to be removed rather so there's all these things going on and so this guy messaged me and said you know I you're right like and we're talking about 10 years this is we're, this is 10 years later that he's sending me this message saying Okay, I, I'm seeing more clearly now the things that you were trying to tell me 10 years ago. So we, you know, we can never force anybody to change. We can, you know, in situations like this over secondary sure. stuff. Yeah, be patient. We, we want to show the opportunity for the word where we have that opportunity and where we have influence to speak into the life. But ultimately... We do have to be patient and just pray and trust that the Lord, as they examine the scriptures, that they'll come to a fuller understanding. So. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yes. So a, a challenge doesn't always have to be, you know, uh, you know, a like a debate, a shouting match. You know, I'm just like you're wrong. You know, type of thing. But a challenge can simply be, you know, have have you thought about this this text of scripture here? Have you thought about how that, what the implications are of that over here? Just 
just kind of nudging them. That that's a challenge to the to their concepts. Yeah. So, Phil. Yeah. truth yeah what about to throw kind of an, a different scenario out there because that that's one of the steps when we're talking about how we how we practically apply this in doing theology of you know thinking of different scenarios of what would this look like what about a situation where it's maybe not we're confronting someone one-on-one -on -one, or maybe we're confronting someone in a small group but what if hypothetical scenario we're at a church and you know maybe we're even at a larger church you know 500,000 2,000 people on a Sunday morning maybe more and the pastor gets up and starts teaching things from the pulpit as truth that we know from scripture to be explicit falsehoods and not just differences on secondary issues or doubtful things, but our differences on primary salvific doctrine. <laughs> but but my, my question is, though, why not? But that, that's kind of what I'm getting at is, would that be a time where we know that this person, by virtue of the position that they hold, is incredibly influential, reaching this isn't just they're reaching one person two people three people this is they're talking to 500 a thousand two thousand maybe more putting it out there that this is the gospel yeah if we're if if we're to hold to the truth the truth of the gospel, the revealed truth in the word, and we know from our example in 3 John with Diotrephes, who was rejecting the truth, rejecting the authority, putting himself first, kicking out anyone who disagreed with him, putting himself, you know, the, the description from other places in scripture of this is a false teacher who is who has rejected the truth. See, because Diotrephes is described as someone who's not just their incorrectable error. He's being described as someone who has outright rejected the truth. He knows what the truth is. People have gone to him with the truth. He's kicked him out. 
he has rejected the truth. What, what, just to just kind of gameplay this out, what about that situation? We're in a, you know, we're in a situation, we know what the truth is. Do we go to them afterwards and say, hey, I think, you know, I think you're wrong on this and this is why I can go here, here, and here in scripture and what you said contradicts scripture, that, that's problematic. Or do we stand up right there and call it out and say, no, this, no, <laughs> this is not true. Sure. I mean, yeah, is, is the situation where people are being actively led astray in such a large number, is, is that something where the exigency of the circumstance warrants us calling it out right there what it is? I would So if this is, uh, you know, playing in this hypothetical scenario, um, you're probably going to get put out by security if you stand up in that moment. And if you put up a a big enough of a fuss, you could get arrested. Now, does that mean that's necessarily the wrong thing to do? Perhaps not. I, I, I would wager to guess that, you know, in a scenario like that, our, uh, you're dealing with such a large church. Um, the authority structure and the way things work in that sort of church may look different. Sure. I don't know. We're, it's we'd have to we'd have to talk a lot about oh, well, what's the polity structure? Okay, how how do you go through proper channels and all do those sorts of things? Because uh, yeah, that that should be something that is is corrected. Uh, hopefully, the church has elders. Well, what if the church doesn't have elders? Well, then you know. Maybe we're not even talking about a, bi- a legitimate biblical church. One thing that I would like to bring us back to Third sure. John for, for I think how a practical answer to this question. Okay. So with Diotrephes, so in this church, there's probably one church in this city. 
we're not dealing like today where you can right. go every church corner, you know, every church corner, there's a church building and stuff, and you've got a whole bunch of different churches. We're not dealing with that in the first century. You got one church. There's one church in this city. Diotrephes is causing trouble in it. And so John says, I'm going to deal with that guy, and I'm going to take care of it. And he was dealt with, right? So he eventually, I assume, if he did not repent, he was put out of the church, and his influence over the body was cut off. In this scenario, um, you know, we don't have influence on every church. You know, if, sure. if we're concerned about, okay, lots of people are hearing false truth. Well, that, ha- that happens all over the place sure. in this city, all over the place. Do So do we have a responsibility to picket those churches? I, I, would, I would probably say that's probably not the best way to do this. I think the best thing is in our text in verses 5 through 8. Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they're strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. One of the best ways that we can combat false teachers is to support good teachers. Be, ha, ha, be positive, have positive relationships with good people that are proclaiming the gospel of Christ, that are being good teachers of the truth. Yeah, we got diatrophies that pop up, and when they pop up in your church, you squash it. Like, you, we deal with it. We say, no, this is not going to happen here. Diatrophies, you cannot do this here. You're speaking against the truth. You're speaking against what is right. No, you're, you're put outside the church. But on a day-to-day basis, the most important thing that we can do is support the truth and those who work for the truth. And then we can be, as the text says, fellow workers with the truth. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yes. What I find interesting, though, and is the, you know, he says in the text, you know, I'm, I'm, when I get there, or if I get back, I'm going to deal with him, but presumably by time he's written this letter calling him out as, you're a false teacher, he hasn't dealt with him yet, because he says, I'm going to. Yeah. So it's like, do we have a, you know, even though, yes, clearly, like, John gives us an example of, I'm going to go to this person, and I'm going to deal with this person because he's done X, Y, and Z. And yes, we need to support good teachers, as John talks about. But at the same time, John also very publicly calls him out in that church is like, you're, you're a false teacher. <laughs> so I guess that, they like said, that this is one of those things when we start talking about what's the practical application for us here today. These are the things we have to think about. You know, what what does that look like? And where does our, you know, where does our responsibility lie? Well, you know, our, our responsibility is always to the gospel. But people-wise, in that scenario, is our responsibility to that false teacher, to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go quietly to this person, is our responsibility to the people that he's just falsely taught of, no, I, I need to let them know they, they've been taught wrong. And how do, we, how do we do this in a biblical, Christ-honoring way? That's the practical application of this, that we have this, we have the truth, we have the meaning that the truth matters. The gospel 
matters. We have the truth revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and the, we have the preserved word of you know, the law, the prophets, the apostles, and the gospel. That's the truth we hold to. The revealed truth of God is revealed in the scripture. How do we do that? It's not always, sometimes it's not always easy, and, and this is one of those where sometimes we're going to have differences of opinion. So we're probably not going to stone them. There could be multiple right ways to approach there, And that's, there could be, there's one meaning, but there can be multiple applications. And sometimes, again, it's kind of, yeah. So with the, you know, with the structure of the church, Maybe we approach it differently depending on how it's structured. Well, that can be multiple applications. Same meaning, not changing the meaning of the text, but how I apply and implement that, can, there can be multiple. So we are out of time. We've completed our 4A through 3 John. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to work through your word and to wrestle with the truth of your word with what it means and how it applies and father i pray that that we would hold to the truth that we would hold fast to the truth that has been revealed and has been preserved for us and we thank you that you have preserved your word your word is truth we thank you in jesus name amen